Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. If these resources have been a blessing to you, we would be honored if you would consider making a donation to our church building fund. To learn more about this unique challenge ahead of us and to partner with us for a gospel legacy in Missoula, please visit achurchbuilding.com. That's achurchbuilding.com. Lord Jesus, we have needs um, that we can't even understand. We have blind spots in our vision of you, blind spots in our vision of ourselves, blind spots in the vision of those who we love around us. And the only way we can see clearly and therefore act clearly is if you're gracious enough um, to open our eyes. And so we ask that your word, the light of your word, this word that Moses says is radiant like the dawn, that it actually illuminates our hearts so we can do Christian things as a response. We thank you for your word. We pray all this in your name. Amen. So in 1986, a young man named Len Bias reached his lifelong dream. He was drafted number two overall in the NBA draft to the Boston Celtics. He had spent his whole life being a basketball player. And here it was. Not only was he picked to play basketball, but he was one of the top two. He was the top of the class to go in. The one on whom all of the anticipation and hopes, not only for himself, but for the whole league, was hanging on. But tragically, two days after, he died of an accidental overdose. He was so close to the reality he spent his whole life working towards, but in the end, he missed out. In the mid-1800s, there was a physician named John Snow who went public with what was then a novel but transformative theory that most of the world's diseases, much like the cholera disease that was ravaging his hometown of London, they weren't transmitted simply through dirty air, which was the common belief at the time, but actually there are these small microscopic organisms that humans could ingest and become sick through those means. And while he didn't yet have a name for him, Snow was really the first physician to popularize a theory that is now the bedrock theory of modern medicine called germ theory, that we get sick from germs, not just dirty smelling air. And yet, when Snow went public with this, he was laughed at. And the end of his professional career was one of scorn and rejection. It wasn't until 10 years afterwards where the same uh, uh, government officials who were laughing at him realized that he was right. And it became a a long-term foundation of how we treat diseases. You see, whether in basketball or science or in inventions or in your own relationships, we know how universal it is to miss out on something that we seem we have invested many resources, many hours, and even perhaps our whole life into. In fact, marketers and psychologists are coming from different angles to the same end of something they call FOMO, the fear of missing out. It's a fear because we all know it. It's universal. And this is why the conclusion of Deuteronomy, we're in our 17th week in the book of Deuteronomy, this is why this passage is so practical, not only to those who, like the Israelites, were listening thousands of years ago, but for us today. And that's because if you look around at our world, you look around in our city, we haven't outgrown the human crisis. We haven't outgrown the human condition. We are still paralyzed, burdened, and crippled by frustrations, false hopes, and a fear of missing out. But in an ironic turn of events, our passage today highlights the story of a man who is seemingly going to miss out on everything. But by the end, we see that he didn't miss anything. And wouldn't you like it? If in your education, if only in your purchases, like I panicked this, I told this to my community group, I had three weeks of researching wireless headphones because I didn't want to make the wrong decision. If in your investments, if in your purchases, if in your relationships, if in your life you knew one day you could stand and look back and say, I didn't miss out on anything. Or that when it seems you're missing out on something, you could say it's not meaningless or futile. This is really what the passage in Deuteronomy is about today because Moses, the people's pastor, is going to die. But in the closing moments of this book, he imparts to Israel a message. 
in which he wants to set for them a trajectory where they will not miss out on what they truly want. And our text today is not only the conclusion of the book of Deuteronomy, it's actually the conclusion of what is called the Pentateuch, which are the first five books of the Bible, all the books that were written by Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. I almost went to Joshua because I was just in a rhythm, you know, like Sunday school. Um, so the first five books, and this is the conclusion of it, this thing that was kind of a literary unit in the Bible, which means that what is being written in these concluding chapters of Deuteronomy kind of set the trajectory for the rest of Israel's history that's going to follow in Joshua and Judges. It's going to lead into the prophetic books where they're longing to be back in a land. And actually, it's going to shape what the people of God are looking for in the New Testament when Jesus comes back. And here we have, in your text today, we're going to be in chapter 32, um, 33, and 34. So we're actually spanning three chapters. What you see is this can be bookended by two accounts of Moses' death. And then in the middle... There's this song of blessing, which Moses wants to set as a trajectory for the hearts of Israel so that they won't miss out. And here's what we're going to see today in the pages of Deuteronomy when it comes to missing out. We're going to see, first of all, why is it that Moses is going to miss out? Then we're going to see why is it that God's people shouldn't miss out? And then lastly, we are going to see, kind of through the lens of Deuteronomy and through the whole gospel, everything we've ever wanted. Because this is really the context of what's going on. If you remember, um, Deuteronomy is mostly a sermon. And the context of the sermon is God's people Israel sitting on the banks of the Jordan River, across which is the promised land. And this is not only something that is the end of the Pentateuch, but it's actually the culmination and the climax of the Pentateuch. This is what all of the first five books were building towards. See, in book one in Genesis, God created a people, Adam and Eve. And he put them in his place in the Garden of Eden. And he promised to be with them in his direct presence. But Adam and Eve chose to distrust God. They chose to rebel against God. And because of that, they were put out of the place. And if you continue to read through Genesis, starting in chapter 12, God begins to overcome the separation that sin brought between him and his humanity. Because God again goes to humanity in a covenant. He finds this man named Abraham who has no home and is a wanderer who has nothing marvelous about him and says, Abraham, I am going to be your God and I am going to make you into a mighty people. And along with that promise of being his people, he says, I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to bring you into the land of promise. But as Genesis continues to unfold, we realize that through distrust, sin, backbiting, lack of faithfulness. God's people don't end up in the promised land. They end up as sojourners in Egypt. And those sojourners quickly turned, in the beginning of Exodus chapter 1, to slaves. They were a people of great multitude. They were God's people of great multitude. But they weren't in God's place. And so here in Exodus we see Moses introduced. Moses is the man who's going to go to God's people and he's going to bring them out of Egypt and bring them into God's place. And that's what Moses did, right? He delivered them out uh, by the hand of God. We see 10 plagues. We see the parting of the Red Sea and they come into the wilderness and they get to the promised land at Kadesh Barnea. They finally get to the land and the people say, no, we're not going to go in. It's too scary. We wish we were back in Egypt. And so what happens is they rebel against God. And so God doesn't allow them in the promised land. They get 40 years of punishment wandering in the wilderness. And this is what we read about in the book of Numbers. But now 40 years have passed since Kadesh Barnea. And they are back at the banks of the Jordan River looking into everything they've longed hoped for. Looking into the culmination of all of their false hopes and wrong decisions. Here at last it is there at their long-awaited resolution. But look at what unfolds concerning Moses in the end of chapter 32. That very day, the Lord spoke to Moses, go up on this mountain of Abraham, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab, opposite Jericho, and view the land of Canaan, that's the promised land, which I am giving to the people of Israel for a possession, and die on the mountain at which you go up, and be gathered to your people as Aaron, your brother, died in Mount Hor 
and was gathered to his people. Because you broke faith with me in the midst of the people of Israel, at the waters of Meribah Kadesh, in the wilderness of Zin, and because you did not treat me as holy in the midst of the people of Israel. For you shall see the land before you, but you shall not go there into the land I am giving to the people of Israel. So Moses, we see later on, is 120 years old at this point. And the last 40 years of his life, the last third of his life, he has given everything to getting God's people back to the promised land. And here they are. And God says, you're going to cross this time. The people are going to make it in. But you won't, Moses. In fact, God gives him a command, literally, go die. Go die on the mountain. Why? Why is God being so seemingly harsh here? And this is what we see today. Why did Moses miss out? Moses missed out because he did not treat God as holy. That's what God says to Moses in verse 51. He says, you will not cross the land because you did not treat me as holy. And God references this scene in the wilderness of Zin where Moses made a mistake. For the umpteenth time, the people of Israel were whining in the desert about there not being water because they had failed to learn that God always provided for them. And so they go to Moses and they start whining for the millionth time, the question of, are we there yet? Can I use the bathroom? Can I have something to drink? Is coming out of the back seat. And Moses does what we should do in times like that. He goes to God. He says, what do you want me to do with these people? And this is where the story picks up in Numbers chapter 20, beginning in verse 7. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, take the staff. And assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give, them, get, and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. In other words, it's going to be abundant. Not only are the people going to eat out of a rock, but everyone is going to drink out of the rock. Did I say eat out of the rock? Drink out of the rock. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels. God left out that part. I lost my point. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank, and their livestock, and everyone had the water they always wanted. It seemed like a success except for Moses. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land I have given to them. God says, Moses, speak to the rock, and the rock will yield its water. But Moses, in frustration, wanting to make a point. How do you know he's wanting to make a point? Most things, when they start with you rebels, are generally for the sake of making a point. He strikes the rock twice. And for the people, everything's the same. But for Moses, everything is now different. This might seem really insignificant. It might seem like moderate frustration playing itself out in what's a reasonable way. But it's here at Meribah Kadesh, that we see the severity of sin and the holiness of God. God told Moses what to do, and Moses did it his own way. And here in Deuteronomy 32, years later, God is telling Moses the theology that was at play back at this moment. What happened when Moses sinned? What happens when we sin? We refuse to treat God as holy. Paul identifies this exact same thing in Romans 1 when he's talking about the universality of sin, where everybody is complicit in sin. Look at what he says. Verse 20 of chapter 1. For his, that's God, for God's invisible attributes, 
namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. To see a beautiful sunrise, to see Lolo, to see the Grand Canyon, to see a black hole in space, you should know there is something holy and other out there that breathed all of this into existence. But, look at how it continues. For although they knew God, that is seeing him in his created world, they, that's us, that's humanity, did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinkings and their foolish hearts were darkened. People saw God's holy attributes and they refused to honor God as holy. And that is the root of all sin. God told Moses what to do and he didn't think God as holy. He didn't think God as distinct. If my two-year-old daughter, she's gotten in this phrase of yelling stop just randomly. I don't know why, but she says stop. And most of the times when I hear it, I don't think anything of it. When my seven-year-old says stop, I'm a little more aware. When my wife says stop, I should really start listening. And when a policeman says stop, I ought to stop. You see, the level at which someone is set apart in authority the greater the obligation on the individual. And that's what holiness communicates. Holiness is a word that has a momentum of its own that we often know but we don't define. And holy just means to be set apart, to be distinct. And if God is holy and set apart, then to act like he is no more than my two-year-old daughter is a grievous sin. To not treat God as holy is to say to God, I don't care what you have to say. And who are you? to tell it to me. You see, Moses' grave with a view on top of the mountain is a stark reminder of how dangerous sin is. But it's also a reminder of how pervasive God's judgment is. Just as Israel as a nation was punished at Kadesh Barnea for not obeying God, so too is Moses, their leader, punished at Meribah Kadesh. He doesn't get a get-out-of-jail-free card. Everybody is judged for their sin. Sin is serious, and God judges sin seriously, regardless of who you are. This is why we must find salvation in Jesus. Because it's only in Jesus' taking our punishment for sin on the cross that we can ever have our sin dealt with in a way which ends with life. And the truth of the matter is, if Moses was not safe from his sin, Moses, whom Exodus 33.11 says, God spoke to as if face to face as one speaks to a friend. If Moses was not safe from his sin, you, my friends, are not safe from yours. And I am not safe from mine. We must see Jesus to make us safe because of our sin. And so here Moses is going to go up on a mountain and die He's not going to look in the promised land because he refused to treat God as holy. He refused to see God as distinct. He refused to see God as something worthy of obedience. So what's Moses going to do? What would you do if all of your friends are going to get the thing you spent your whole life wanting to do and now you know you're going to die? Well, Moses does what any good pastor should do. He's going to encourage them. He's going to tell them what they need to not make the same mistakes he made. He says, despite his own circumstances, there's a way forward even for you. In fact, it's precisely because Moses is missing out on the blessing of the land that he sings this song and blesses his people. Because Moses missed out, he wants his people to not miss out. He wants it to go well with them, and so he's going to give them everything they know to live differently. And this is the second point today, why God's people shouldn't miss out. If the heart of sin is a failure to see God as unique, to see God as holy, to see God as set apart, then Moses' practical words for his people is to help them see how wonderfully set apart God is. To see how great he is. We looked at that last week. There's nothing more practical than seeing the greatness of God. There's nothing more practical than seeing the holiness of God. There's nothing more practical than seeing the beauty of God. And in the scope of this song... Moses is going to highlight four aspects of this holy God which should give Israel all sorts of confidence moving forward. 
And this is so important because have you ever wondered why anyone would follow the God of the Bible? You see, the heart of a call to following this God is a call to die, to pick up your cross and follow him. Whoever seeks to gain his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will find it. That doesn't mark it well in a FOMO culture. So why is it that people follow this God? Why is it that history is littered with stories of men and women who for the fame and glory of Jesus Christ have sacrificed lives, career, finances, and family? Because God is holy. Because there is nothing like this God. And this is exactly what Moses begins to express in his song, beginning in chapter 33, verses 1 through 2. This is the blessing with, with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the people of Israel before his death. He said, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. So what is the first Reason why God's people shouldn't ignore this God? Why shouldn't you forget? Moses' first point is because he speaks. This God speaks. Moses is defining Sinai here, which if you remember, um, was after God brought them out of Egypt. They went to Mount Sinai, and this is where God descended on Sinai, and there was this, this fire and this trumpet, and the golden calf was down in the valley. And in this moment, God is descri- or Moses is calling them to think back on Sinai, where God spoke to his people, where God verbally gave them his law. And he uses kind of this three-layered imagery that's all visible. He says, it was God speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, where God came to Moses. God comes to us through his word. In God's word, God dawned on Israel. There was darkness until God spoke. And then like that one hole in your blinds that hits your eyes in the morning, God revealed himself to his people and said, this is who I am. And even more than that, he shone forth in radiant splendor. It was a light you could feel. Do you understand what is at the heart of the Christian God? Here is not only a God who exists, not only a God who has been active, Not only a God who has created, not only a God as we see here who is mightier than 10,000 angels and burning as a flaming fire, but a God who comes to his people and reveals himself to them in his word. I remember when I was in college, I don't know if it still is a thing, um, but there was like a website you could go to and you could pay like 99 cents and a celebrity would call your friend and like wish him a happy birthday. Like Chuck Norris would call and be like, Hey, I don't know, that's not a Chuck Norris accent. Anyway, Chuck Norris would call and be this recording, and he would say, Hey, Kyle, happy birthday. This is Chuck Norris. Roundhouse kick good. And then he would, like, it would end. But the truth is, is in that moment, Chuck Norris didn't give a lick about Kyle, nor did he really expect Kyle to know him through this phone call. Because what happened is Chuck Norris went to a studio someday and someone gave him a script of 10,000 names and he read it and then he read the birthday thing and a computer would just place the name into the birthday thing and auto-dial you. He spoke, but behind it was no expectation for relationships. But brothers and sisters, when God speaks to us in history, And when he has spoken to us most clearly in his word, it is because he wants us to know him. It is no cheap phone call for the sake of feeling good about yourself. It is the God of the universe desiring to know you and to be known by you. God wants to be known. Why does God act? Why is, I've heard it said that all of scripture is a burning bush. It is something miraculous calling us to look. And why does God do it? Because he wants us to know him. To hear God and do nothing with it is to miss the point of the speaking God. Moses says, Israel, do not forget that this God has spoken to you. That this God, in all of his might, wants to be known by you. This God speaks. Don't miss out. Then look at what he says next. Verses 3 through 5. 
We have this flaming God. And then it goes and says this. Yes, he loved his people. All his holy ones were in his hand. So they followed in your steps, receiving direction from you. When Moses commanded us a law as a possession for the assembly of Jacob, thus the Lord became king in Jeshurun. That's kind of the intimate name for Israel. When the heads of the people were gathered and all the tribes of Israel gathered together. Why does God speak? We see he speaks. Why does he speak? Why does he reveal himself to his people? He doesn't have to. He would have been good to not do it. But here we see why. Because he loves his people. What should you not forget? What should you not miss out on? That this God not only speaks, but he loves. Do you understand the reality of this? A good God might be motivated to interact in the lives of people because of pity. A great God might be motivated to interact with his people on the grounds of mercy. But the God of the Bible interacts with his people in history because he loves them. Yes, he loved his people. God judges. We saw that last week. Because he is just and all sin will be punished apart from grace in Jesus Christ. But God saves Because he loves. God saves people out of a desire to love his people. Meaning salvation is not transactional. That's legalism. Salvation is relational through the gospel. It involves God's heart towards you. And it is his heart towards you which melts away our sin and brings us to his grace. This idea of the centrality of love has long been a theme in this book. Look with me at Deuteronomy 10, verses 14 through 15. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and earth, the heaven of heavens, the earth and all that is in it. So here we see this great glorious God, yet, here's the amazing thing, the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all people, as you are this day. Love is not something we invented in the shadows of Eden. Love is something that was woven into us as we were created in the image of God because God loves people. It's an extension of the God who made us, but more importantly, it's an extension of the God who is calling men back to himself through Jesus Christ. Look with me at 1 John verse, or chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, meaning love didn't start with us, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, that's this payment for our sins. And to make this even more remarkable, so we live in a love-saturated world. Everyone loves. But so many times the love of our world is pathetic and weak and can't do anything. But look at how wonderful the love of God is. Look back at verses 3 through 5. Yes, he loved his people and all his holy ones were in his hands. There's this aspect of security. So they followed in your steps, receiving direction from you. When Moses commanded us a law as a possession for the assembly of Jacob... Thus, so here in this law giving, in this holding on through the possession of Jacob, the Lord became king in Jeshurun. God's love for us is so effective that it actually sets out to rule us. God loves us so that he might reign over us as king. Meaning it guides every aspect of our lives. That's what the law was to Israel. It was when the law was given that the Lord became king. Why? Because the citizens finally saw the glory of this God and what it looked like to live as his subjects. To be loved by this great God is to be placed under the reign of this God, which means to be a Christian is also to be under the reign of God. It is to look to him for how we should live and how we're to interact with those around us. 
Jesus says something really similar in John 14, verse 15. It's really complex, really convoluted, and I hope you can understand it today. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Love and kingship, love and ruling, love and reign are always connected when we have a good king. And here's why this is such a grace. Having a king that lovingly rules us, that is to lovingly tell us how we should live, is a wonderful grace because it actually removes our anxiety. This might seem really odd to see love and rules. Our society tells that those can't coexist. But in the Bible, this is wonderful. And actually, in life, we know how wonderful this is, despite how culture is trying to change our definition of love. Can you imagine if you were required to love someone who refused to tell you anything about themselves? Where every time you said, hey, honey, what do you want to do for date night? She just looked at you and said, figure it out. You would just kind of do things and hope that at the end you were met by a kiss and not a cold shoulder. But I think that's how many of us view following Jesus. We don't really know what it looks like. But we're going to do a lot of stuff that we think pleases him. And hopefully at the end, when all is said and done, we'll look and we'll say that we've done enough. And that he is pleased with us. But here's the beauty of a king who rules his people in love. He tells them what he wants from them. He lifts the anxiety of having to be worried about our performance in every sector. Because he has told us what he wants. Jesus himself echoes Deuteronomy when he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's what he wants you to do. How are you to do it? He also tells us that. Go forth and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to do all that I have commanded you to do. You see, the wonderful news of a king who rules us in love is that you know what to do right now. You know you are called to love the Lord and love others. And what does that look like? Whether you're a pastor, whether you're a pediatrician, whether you're a plumber, it looks like making disciples for the glory of God. We know what it looks like to live in God's love. What a blessing and what a grace. But this now is where Moses turns to the majority of his song. Really verses 15 through, uh, or 1 through 5, and 26 through 29 are kind of these theological introductions to which um, verses uh, 6 through 25 are this middle that Moses is aiming at. And what happens is in this middle, Moses begins to bless the tribes of Israel. And so what do we do as New Covenant believers who are looking at this psalm and these uh, blessings specifically to specific tribes in specific contexts? But we take note of the broad thing which Moses wants the tribes to see. That's that God delivers. This is the third reason that they shouldn't miss out. This God delivers on his word. This God always does as he promised. I'm not going to spend time working through the specifics of these blessings in verses 6 through 25. But what happens is Moses specifically names tribes. And he tells them what their blessing will be like. And the wonderful thing is all of the blessings depend on them being in the land. Moses' point is, I'm dying here on this dirt hill, but you're going across. And God is going to be just as good to you over there as he is here. God is going to keep his promise. Your salvation is not in the power of man, but in the arms of God. God will endure you. And he gets specific. He says, Zebulun and Issachar, you're going to draw from the seas. You're going to fish on the shores of the promised land. He says to Joseph that you're going to have abundant produce in the land. Asher is going to be anointed and strong in the land. Naphtali will live in the lake in the south, or on the lake, not in the lake, in the south of the land. But it's not all roses. But God's promise remains. In the middle of this assurance of blessing also comes the assumption of trials. Reuben will have many, but they'll struggle, and his men will be few. Judah will have people contend with him. Levi will have people hate him. Gad will fight like a lion. But both in the blessings and in the burdens, Moses is saying, God is there to bless you. God is there to endure you. God wants you to receive the promise of his presence in all these things. 
God will fulfill his word. He will deliver you. You must continue to entrust yourself to him. When new seasons of life in times of transition present themselves to you, do not think that God has withdrawn himself from you. Do not think that his promise to you is only good when things are perfect. But God has always promised to deliver his people with his presence. And even though Moses reminds them of God's promise to give them the land, this is where he really begins to instruct them on what it looks like to not miss out. Because when we talk about promise, when we talk about deliverance, when we talk about blessing, it's really easy to think in terms that our world thinks in, of health, of money, of success. Does God just exist to bless us with these things? But look at how he concludes this blessing, verses 26 through 28. There is none like God, O Jeshurun. That's what he's saying to Israel. O Israel, there is none like God who rides through the heavens to your help, through the skies in his majesty. The eternal God is your dwelling place. And underneath are the everlasting arms. And he thrust out the enemy before you and said, destroyed. So he's speaking of the conquest. So Israel lived in safety. Jacob lived alone in a land of grain and wine whose heavens drop down dew. And so here's the last reason Moses gives that his people should not miss out. He is our possession. He speaks, he loves, he delivers. In Israel, he is your dwelling place. Moses says, you are gonna get into the land You will live in the land, but the eternal God is your dwelling place. You'll be so distracted to see the land as important. This is what everything is culminating in. There's this huge paradigm shift for the first five books of the Bible. It's all about the land. It's all about the land. It's all about the land. And Moses gets there and he's like, it's not about the land. It's about the God who stands behind it. It's about the God who has promised to be near his people in it. Your dwelling place is in the eternal God. And if we, ref- if we struggle to see that God is the possession we need, instead of the gifts of God, we will always be paralyzed and hurt by the burden of missing out. Because we will look to things to satisfy us. But this has always been Moses' message in the book of Deuteronomy. He warns us against our desire for things. He warns us against the desire for good things. He even warns them against the desire for things which God alone can give. Look with me at Deuteronomy 31, verse 20. For when I have brought them, so this is God speaking, into the land flowing with milk and honey, that's the promised land, which I swore to give to their fathers, and they have eaten and are full and grown fat, meaning they have absolutely everything. Then with everything they will turn to other gods and serve them and despise me and break my covenant. Look at verse 28, or chapter 28, verse 47. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart, Why? What prevented them from serving God with joyfulness and gladness? Because of the abundance of all things. Look at Deuteronomy 6, verse 10 through 12. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land, this is where he's at, this is where he started, and this is where he's ended. When he brings you into the land, he swore you, swore to your father, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give to you with great and good cities that you did not build, houses full of all good things that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and when you are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You see, it takes a man who is being commanded to go up and die on a hill, who by worldly standards is missing out on everything to warn a people that the greatest danger is often getting everything. 
that the greatest danger is often receiving the things you think you need. Our world, thousands of years ago and today, is at no shortage of things which demand, don't miss out on me. To miss out on me is to miss out on joy. To miss out on me is to miss out on life. To miss out on me is to miss out of God's blessing. And to a degree, this was the promised land. This was a very good blessing given by God himself to Israel. God gave it to them, but the problem is our hearts can quickly fear missing out on the gift of God instead of missing out on God. Because Israel's gonna live in the land. They're gonna have it, but their hearts are gonna forget their God. And when that happens, everything changes. And that's what Moses says is going to happen. It's very possible for them to get everything they want, but miss what they truly need. And this is what we must see today. God is our possession. What you are after at the heart of all things is something which only God can provide. It is the God who's calling us back to himself through Jesus Christ. Look at what David says. David, who lived in the land. David saw the culmination. He saw the brightest moment of national Israel. And look at what he says in Psalm 37, verse 3 through 4. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Do you see the bookends that David creates here? Dwelling in the land, receiving the desires of your heart come when you trust in the Lord and when you delight yourself in him. How can that make sense? Because it's not about the land. It's not even about the desires of your heart. It's about the God who is so big to satisfy both. We were made to delight in God and this world will wage war against your soul trying to tell you that you will find satisfaction in gifts from God instead of God himself. And that leads to so much anxiety because family, because health, friends, homes, and finances can all be stripped away. But in the gospel of Jesus, the thing that was made to satisfy us rests securely. Look at this spatial good news in verses 27. The eternal God is your dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. He thrust out the enemy before you and said, destroy. Do you hear that? The practical truth of God is your possession. You dwell in him presently. He will go before you into the unknown battles you have yet to face. And should you fall, should you fail, what is underneath you except for his everlasting arms to hold you? David says in Psalm 37, verse 25, I was young and now I'm old. And I have not yet seen the righteous forsaken. Brothers and sisters, believe the speaking, loving God. That when he is our possession, we no longer face crippling anxiety because the truth is we are the ones possessed. He is the one holding on to us with everlasting arms of grace through Jesus where Jesus says, no one can snatch them out of my hand. And this is our last point. You see, Jesus and the restoration to God through the gospel is everything we've ever wanted. Moses didn't treat God as holy, but now he's held up a picture of God so wonderful that only a fool will look at this speaking, loving, delivering, and possessing God and say, this world has something better. And look at Moses' conclusion, verse 29. Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help and the sword of your triumph. 
Your enemies shall come fawning to you, and you shall tread upon their backs. What a wonderful summary. If this kind of God exists, if this kind of God has spoken and loved and delivered and possessed us through his son, then there is no other response to stand even on the other side of what we want and say, happy are we to be saved by this God. Satisfied are we to be loved like this. How happy? Happy enough to miss out on everything. Look at what happens. Deuteronomy 34, 1 through 12. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo at the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land. Gilead as far as Dan, all Nephtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the Negeb and the plain that is the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees as far as Zor. And the Lord said to him, this is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes, Moses, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him. That is to say, God himself buried Moses in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor, but no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he dies. His eyes were undimmed and his vigor unabated. Why do they want us to know? Moses didn't just go on a mountain to die. He died as a sign of God's judgment. And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. And Joshua, the son of Nun, he was full of the spirit. For Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord commanded Moses. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all the servants of his land, and for all the mighty power and the great deeds of terror Moses did in the sight of all Israel. So here we read Moses' death. And from worldly standards, we can't think of a more painful way to go. We can certainly invent a more physically painful way. But can you imagine a more emotionally painful way? To see with clear, unabated vision the beauty of the land and to not make it. To see everything your life has worked for and to come up one riverbank short. But this account doesn't read like a tortured soul, does it? In fact, as we read through Moses' death, we get a sense of a friendship between a man and his God. Between Moses and a God who spoke face to face. And now look at how this relationship played out in a moment where it seemed Moses was missing everything. Look again at verses 1 through 6. Then Moses went up from the mountain, and God showed him all of this land. And then beginning in verse 4, he says, This is the land I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab opposite Beth Peor. And no one knows the place of this burial to this day. In Moses' death, we don't read of a panicked, stricken man, paranoid about missing out. Though I'm sure it was undoubtedly sad, and rightfully so. But instead, we read of a man who, though dying, is dying with God. A God who showed him the land. A God so near that he himself took care of Moses' burial. 
And if we read the history of Israel, which goes on, what we will see is that it's very possible that here in the moment of Moses' death, he had a greater reality of the promise and goodness of God than even Israel will as they cross over the Jordan into the land of Canaan. Because Moses understood by grace what he preached to his people, that this God was his possession. And happy was he to be saved by God. Brothers and sisters, we will miss out on so much in this world. That is in part because the call to follow Jesus is a fall to say no to the world. Say no to the things that are overtly sinful and lead only to destruction. But we might also miss out on things which, just like the promised land, are good, encouraged, and even spoken highly of by God. There are people in here who, for the sake of God's kingdom, might miss out on marriage, family, good health, healthy 401ks, and homes. And when you come into this building, you might simply look around and see other people in here and instead of seeing what you share, you see only what you lack in comparison to them. And there is no burden stronger than that. And yet, the grace of Jesus lifts our eyes to the wonderful God who we can have in full. If we are saved by Jesus Christ, we miss out on nothing. Look at how the author of Hebrews speaks of this. After going through an entire chapter telling us of people who missed out, they gave up homes, they gave up treasures, they were sawn in two, they were fed to lions, they were displaced from their homeland. Look at what he says. Verses 13 through 16. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, just like Moses, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they'd gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. In other words, if it was about the land, they could have had the land. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God because he has prepared for them a city. C.S. Lewis once said that our desire is not that we wrestle with satisfaction, but it's that we're far too easily pleased. Behind everything we fear missing out on in this world, as the promise of an eternity with God who is made to satisfy us. And the only way to get to that grace, to be assured of that and to rest from your anxiety is to see how Jesus and Jesus alone gets us there. The author of Hebrews knew this in chapter three when he said this. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses as much more glory as the builder of a house has, more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, and the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if what? If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. For the Israelites, it was hard to hold on to hope when they were losing Moses. But the author of Hebrews says that for those who hold on to Jesus, you will never miss out. Faith and repentance 
is where we receive a hope, a possession, a promise, an experience which cannot be removed from us in Jesus. Jesus is the one who atones for our sins and spans the separation between us and God. Jesus is the one who doesn't just bring us into the blessing, but brings us back to God because God is the blessing. And here's this wonderful reality. Man, this is good news to us. And if we just open our eyes, we see it. Because here in Deuteronomy 34, Moses dies on a mountain in the land of Moab. Not the promised land, not the land of God's people, Moab. But thousands of years later, four men climb a mountain in the heart of the promised land. And look at how this scene unfolds. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother. And they led them up a high mountain and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he, that's Jesus, was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun's and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we're here. If you wish, we'll make three tents here. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. In other words, who wants to leave this? Let's stay here forever. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And then verse 8 says, when they lifted their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. You see, Moses eventually made it into the promised land. And he made it only with Jesus. And in this wonderful twist of cosmic humor, he's there for a moment. And then he, he's gone. He like pops up. And what we would do is we'd be like, we're here! Peter, build the tent. Let's do this thing. This is what I've been waiting for. But what does Moses do? He speaks with his Savior. And there is no heel dragging or clenched fists when he's taken up because it has been altogether overshadowed by something more glorious. He has been taken up to the land that he realizes is far greater than this worldly blessing. And he left so that God might make it clear to you, what should you do? If you want to, like Moses, get what you've always hoped for, even if it looks like you've lost everything you've worked for. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. To miss out ultimately is to miss Jesus. Jesus came and died for our sins so that we can see clearly that we were not made to be satisfied by things which are not holy, but that we are made to be satisfied by him who is set apart far above us and that through his work we are made holy so that we can enjoy his love for us for all eternity. To repent and believe is to receive the promise that as you go forward in this land in both hardships and in blessings, you might learn that it is not the gifts that satisfy, but the God. The God who has saved us in Jesus Christ. At the end of all things, you might die on the highest hill looking over your holiest hope and still say, happy am I to be saved by the Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that you shine forth today. The Lord came from Sinai. He dawned forth from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. Yes, he loved his people. Happy are you, for who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your hope,
in the sword of your triumph. Lord, turn our eyes and our hearts to you so that we might not miss out. So that when all is said and done, whether in poverty or in palaces, whether in beauty or in barrenness, we might say, we have missed nothing for we have been saved by this God. We pray this in your name. Amen.